I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to... Harry Clark. So, Gary, welcome to the podcast, and um, you are a glaciologist uh, emeritus. Um, what does emeritus mean? Oh, well, it's the uh, dignified uh, name given to the retired faculty members, um, usually ones that try to remain active in one way or another, and I'm, I'm hoping I qualify for such an honor. Uh, and I'm still quite a zealous participant in the department, though the COVID has made it a lot harder to um, log the hours. I used to spend a lot of time here, and now when I, that is to say, on campus. And now when I come to my office and look for colleagues, they're, they're not around, so it, it, the social possibilities are greatly diminished. And in that respect, I've found it um, quite congenial to do most of my work at home right now but I still miss the contact of the various friends I have here. Uh, completely understandable. <laughs> uh, now, again, you're a glaciologist. What is a glaciologist, or how would you define that? Well, it's certainly uh, the scientific study of glaciers, um, but a bit larger than that. Uh, at least we've aspired to be larger than that. It's the uh, sort of ice on Earth and ice in the solar system, uh, it turned out there's a lot more ice uh, off the Earth than there is on it, uh, and that's become a, a many sources of fascination for people in planetary science. I haven't had any actual firsthand uh, contact with that. I've been interested in Mars glaciation, but never turned that into any useful science. Just a lot of interesting things to follow right now. Excellent. Um, what's the big trend in glaciology? Well, the, the sad trend at the moment, um, and it's it's not one we embrace, it's made us um, a lot more central than we've been for a long time, I think, or ever. I would have to say um, we have been central once before in the historic past, but the present uh, reason for our centralism is all to do with climate change and the uh, anxiety about rising sea level and uh, changes in water supply for our various countries. and. Um, all the anxieties that go with climate change, um, we, we seem to have um, a whole bunch of them connected to glaciers and the fate of ice on Earth. So that's what um, most of us do right now. And uh, I think it's a sense of uh, social obligation that drives us, not one that makes us cheerful in the mornings when we get up. But uh, someone's got to do it. Uh, Absolutely. And um, everyone's you know really grateful that you are doing it. You mentioned that glaciology had another heyday. What yeah, was that? it was uh, <laughs> incredibly in uh, around the middle of the 1800s. It was one of the great questions uh, of uh, several great questions uh, were connected to glaciers. Uh, one was how do they flow uh, or do they flow? Uh, and um, there were quite a lot of uh, mysterious uh, suggestions about how this happened that people thought that maybe the cracks you could see on the glacier would fill up with water and then at night they'd freeze and they'd push the glacier by expansion of the ice. And that was the process of glacier motion. 
And uh, that was uh, eventually resolved, but that was a high status question for the whole world of science, not just for uh, a few people who were specialists in glaciers. And then the other great question was the question of the ice age, or now, as we know, many ice ages. But uh, in the early 1800s, there was a lot of evidence of past glaciation and no one had any use for that idea. Um, they mostly attributed it to the great flood of Noah. The earth was covered with water and then the icebergs were moving around and there were big floods and the rocks were pushed about and all the things that the glaciers actually did, like shape the valleys and the whole landscape of Europe and North America. Uh, that was accomplished by Noah's flood, um, but that proved not to be tenable. And uh, eventually it was very persuasively shown that the glaciers had covered pretty well all of um, Western Europe and uh, the northern parts of Europe and uh, most of Russia and most of North, well, all of Canada pretty well, and some large parts of the US at, at one time or another as well. So that was the great question. And um, that was fought out by literary scholars and scientists and great people like Helmholtz and Darwin's, not, uh, not Charles, but the Darwin's were great scientists, all of them. Uh, so they were hacking it out and um, having uh, very heated arguments about whether glaciers moved and whether so-and-so had copied somebody else's idea. Uh, it was qu quite a wonderful thing. I read that literature with great, great interest. But it's quite a delight if you've got a lot of time. <laughs> <laughs> Scientific fights are, or feuds are the best kind, I think. <laughs> the most entertaining kind. Uh, how did you get into this field? What did you study in school? Uh, well, I was heading into architecture and they, they wanted um, you to take some sort of pre-degree. Uh, and I figured, okay, science. And I liked uh, geology and I liked physics. So uh, then I learned. It happened to be the International Geophysical Year about then too. So it wasn't exactly <laughs> a hard idea to get that there was such an idea as geophysics. And I thought, that's great, physics and geology. Uh, let's try it out. So I uh, signed up for honors physics and geology at the University of Alberta in uh, 1959 <laughs> and um, had a wonderful teacher in my first year of physics who was, in fact, a famous geophysicist um, who persuaded me. He didn't even try to persuade me. It was his excellence that persuaded me. Um, that this was a great thing to do. So I got very engaged in that uh, and continued on that path. And in those days, the um, standard kind of uh, end employment was uh, in uh, mineral or petroleum exploration. And I, in those days, um, there wasn't the um, environmental concerns surrounded with both activities. So that didn't seem to have any um, ethical complications for me. And I uh, was quite cheerful about being educated to become one of those and um, completed my um, undergraduate training and then decided against architecture. And my uh, beloved professor, uh, Garland, uh, George Garland, um, at that, at the same time I was finishing my time at the university, he was transferred or took up a position at the University of Toronto. And I had thought about grad school. And uh, when he decided to move to Toronto, I thought, okay, that's an idea. So I headed to Toronto and did my uh, master's and doctorate there. Uh, now, I find most career paths can be a little circuitous. Um, you know, we face uh, 
struggles and failures or setbacks. Um, you already mentioned you changed direction a little bit from architecture into uh, into geophysics. Um, but have you faced any other challenges like that? I don't know if these are challenges. I, um, I think, um, I'll tell you uh, honestly, when I did my doctorate at Toronto, uh, I'd done, done a master's at Toronto, and it was, in fact, glaciology. I was lucky to be involved, as, even as an undergraduate, in glacier projects in the Yukon, um, scientific ones, and, and uh, was a field assistant, which means for geophysicists that you were good at carrying car batteries long distances over rough ground in order to do seismic work and all the different things geophysicists do. So I was doing that in the Yukon when I was uh, just finished my third year, and then I did it again in my fourth year and turned that into master's work and got a master's degree in um, exploration geophysics uh, on glaciers. But I realized um, in that there were very few examples of employed glaciologists uh, in any role and uh, in particular at universities doing research. So I decided to be practical and I changed into a different line of geophysics, which was um, based on communication theory, um, which was used a lot in the oil industry uh, in seismic exploration. But the notion is that a seismogram, for example, is a complicated message to you from the earth. Uh, and when you hear a complicated message, it might be garbled like, and you have to decide whether it's what's being said is that your house is on fire or it's time for coffee. Um, uh, so here we have these ambiguous messages from the Earth in seismograms, and your task is to infer the Earth structure from these uh, complicated messages. So you can see it's a communication problem when you look at it that way. And it was just in the days when computers were becoming part of the arsenal, and I, I was pretty early into programming. So um, I was well prepared to sort of um, get going in that direction. Uh, so I was trained in that, got my doctorate, and um, indeed I got hired. Um, even before my doctorate, I was recruited by UBC. I never applied for a job, not maybe once in my life. I applied for a postdoc that I got, but I didn't take it up because the UBC um, outreach people came and uh, suggested they did a kind of cold call in my university room. Um, and actually, in those days, I was on a kind of odd schedule. I'd work till about midnight and then go out to um, the kind of all-night coffee houses and listen to folk music or jazz or whatever it was going on and then get to bed about four in the morning. So about nine in the morning, the profs from UBC showed up <laughs> and I wasn't putting on too bright a face, but uh, they, they came and they said, but they'd like to talk to me. And I said, okay. And they said, would you like a job? And I said, gee, that sounds interesting. <laughs> And the job was what I was doing. Um, they were looking for the very thing I trained to do, this communication theory stuff. And uh, a beloved professor here called Ted Ulrich, who was uh, highly uh, unreliable in many respects, he decided on very short notice that he was going to go away to Brazil for some period of time and that the courses that he was expected to teach would be untaught. So that left UBC able or looking for someone with similar talents. and. Um, there weren't many on the ground and they, they therefore found me and I was offered the position. And then that was the end. I never did have another real job uh, since then. I, I was 25 um, uh, when I started the faculty here and uh, 
it doesn't happen that way anymore. You, you struggle and go off and post postdocs for indefinite periods of time. Um, and then if you're lucky, uh, you get an academic position somewhere. So I was lucky. I got UBC. I got academic position in exactly what I was trained to do. And then I got to UBC and I got comfortable. And a few grad students said, hey, I see you've been doing glaciology too. And I said, well, yeah, um, I'd like to do a thesis in that. Would you supervise? I said, sure, okay. Uh, <laughs> and one thing led to another. And I realized that that was actually my true love. Um, and I returned to it. And by that time, it was um, UBC had accepted I was just going to do what I wanted to do. And so I never got fired by changing my direction at all. I, um, I was continued to do the teaching that they'd hoped I would do. And I uh, became a glaciologist slowly. And uh, I'm very glad I made that change and really committed to it. I'm glad you did too. And it sounds like you're incredibly passionate about both fields, really. Um, and I, I think some things never change. Uh, during the pandemic, I was talking to some of our, our faculty and they opened up two time slots for students who were here, but all students in uh, very different time zones. And they were shocked that students on the other side of the world were still taking the Vancouver time slot because they're up in the middle of the night anyway. <laughs> and um, that's that's when they were most comfortable to learn. Well, yeah, good for them. That's a level of heroism I was never required to manage. Uh, thank goodness you didn't have to. Yeah. Now, with that long career, have you made any discoveries that you'd care to share? Well, we were on a quest. Um, there was a, a big problem in glaciology about uh, the stability of glacier flow and the stability of ice sheets. Uh, and anyone in glaciology you talk to would probably say that that was a big, remains a big problem in glaciology. We're concerned that the Antarctica, Antarctica can very quickly uh, transform from an ice sheet to a floating ice in the ocean and uh, the sea level will rise and uh, other catastrophes will accompany that. So these are real questions. And um, on a much smaller scale, we have glaciers in Canada, in the Yukon in particular, that have oscillating flow and really spectacularly oscillating. Um, the fast flow would be maybe up to 20 kilometers a year. And the rink, and when it does that for a year or two, and then it goes into a long slumber, takes uh, maybe a few decades to recover. And at that time, it would be going maybe uh, 10 to 100 meters a year. So there's a huge acceleration that can occur. And people didn't quite know how that came about. And to be honest, they don't fully know even now how that came about. But that was the problem that I got very keen on. And it was, um, and it required a lot of different approaches. So we, I think, were among the first to um, tackle this in a different fashion. About the time that we started, it was became possible to readily drill through glaciers so that you could just blast your way through with hot water. And you could put instruments then at the bottom of the glacier rather than the top. So instead of measuring the solar radiation, the different things that happened at the top or the snowfall, we put uh, instruments under the glacier uh, and measured water pressure under the glacier, for example, and the temperature at the bottom of the glacier. And both of those are quite pertinent because if the ice is frozen to the ground beneath it, it doesn't slide, so it can't go fast. And if the water pressure is high, and there's water pressure if it's not frozen, obviously, um, 
if the water pressure is high, it can float the glacier a bit. So even though it's not a lot of water under the glacier, you can float the glacier um, on a small amount of water and that lifts it off the bed and makes it able to go fast. So the water pressure is really interesting um, to, to measure. And um, we uh, recognized as many others did that the high water pressure was a, probably a necessary feature of the very fast flow that was company surges. So one of the questions then became is how can the water pressure switch from low pressure state to high pressure state? What terminates the surge, the release of the water pressure, et cetera. Uh, we, so we got on that path and then we got interested in um, a lot of other processes under the glacier, like the deformation of the sediment under the glacier, which is another flow contribution. Um, so you imagine the glacier parked on, um, on muck. Um, it can slither over that muck and, and go fast because of that. Uh, and we uh, recognized that and decided to put instruments into the muck to look at how fast it was deforming. And, um, uh, and that's a contribution. And we thought there was relevance to surging and we were kind of um, following that through too. And we did uh, isolate one glacier that wasn't too large for very close study over many decades. We started on that glacier in uh, oh, 1972, and we kept going until 2007 and followed it through a rather feeble surge, unfortunately. We were looking for one of the spectacular ones uh, that was really like turning a switch. And we had instruments all over the base of the glacier under it, running year round and recording into data loggers at the surface. So we had this it, glacier completely instrumented for a while. It was the most instrumented object, uh, ice object in, on earth. Um, uh, and we were waiting for this moment when the switch was turned and the glacier started to go very fast. And then we could see all the things that were going on when the switch over occurred. But we never got that joy. So, um, but we did learn pretty well everything about, or quite a lot about how the processes beneath the glacier operate. And so how, how the flow changes with, with the water, what's going on with the water, numerous things like that. So we, we got a lot of rewards, but they weren't the ones that we were seeking, not precisely the ones anyway. Well, which glacier was that? It's called Trapridge Glacier. You'd find a lot of reference to it in the glaciology literature and not much in the press. Uh, <laughs> but then we did get guests. Uh, oh, National Geographic would come up with crews and things like that. And we, we were uh, and Canadian Film Board and the various people like that. So we had... Uh, Numerous over the years, uh, guests that were in our camp for a while, taking pictures of us uh, doing our work or whatever. But um, the fame of the glacier doesn't come from uh, that kind of media coverage so much as what the scientists have got from it. And where where is it? Uh, Yukon uh, in Kulani National Park. And um, I must say, it's some people think it's the most beautiful place on earth. And this is not me, but uh, I, I actually do think that too. But um, People who've um, come from um, f far distances, all over Europe or whatever, they arrive there and think, oh my, isn't this wonderful? It's perfect. And I think that's close to true. It looks a lot like the Himalaya, really high um, and um, lovely meadows of green and uh, wildlife a bit, uh, ground squirrels, grizzly bears, a few other things. <laughs> Sounds gorgeous. 
I have to admit, yeah, the glacial landscape does sound uh, like one of the more more attractive ones. <laughs> yeah, well, it, and, and you don't get a lot of tourists in there. You have to really fly to get there. We've gone out on foot once, but um, the people who came to visit were always in helicopters. And um, so it's, it's really not um, on anyone's um, sort of visiting list or, or that, or very few people get to see it. Not on the radar, or in your terms, not in their seismograph. <laughs> yeah, well, my terms are radar too. We were using radar a bit, a bit on that glacier. We made a lot of radars. I had several gifted students who built radars um, from scratch using their own ideas, not copying from some diagram. And um, we we did quite a lot of interesting stuff with radar and um, very useful things too. You can map the geometry really simply. You just blast the waves down and they bounce back and you measure how long it took, same as with echo methods like seismics. Um, so we've got good knowledge of the geometry of, of that glacier and lots of others. So you can uh, build these high-tech tools without using YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> now, are you, you doing research right now? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm doing, um, well, I won't call them hobby projects, but they're, they're pet projects of one kind or another. And um, I've got things I'm quite enthusiastic about. I've got three things on the go right now. And um, they're all not at the last minutes of completion, but I, I can see that they'll all get completed. Uh, there's one really delightful one that involves um, some limnologists from Pennsylvania that I'm working with. What are limnologists? Uh, they study lakes. Um, yeah, they're biological limnologists rather than physical limnologists. They're interested in... Uh, the creatures in the, in the lakes uh, rather than maybe the temperature or the stratification. Um, but uh, the, the project they have is really delightful. It's in one of my favorite landscapes, which is uh, the Banff National Park around Lake Louise, where the really beautiful mountains are. And they are looking at the color of alpine lakes. And of course, that is what makes them uh, especially beautiful. And they know why uh, they are especially beautiful. It's because of the glacier silt going into them. They, they give the, these lakes their very special color. And they also recognize that when the glaciers go away, as they will, uh, that the lakes will change their color from sort of lovely emerald lakes to brown or whatever the other, the non-glacier-fed lakes look like. So there'll be a kind of aesthetic loss uh, from, with the change of color of these lakes. And they've been studying this for maybe 15 years. They're remarkably hardy people. I went out with them this summer for uh, just a day and they're carrying two kayaks on, on the back and then all their instruments and uh, putting instruments in the lake. And uh, so we're up there and I'm, I'm carrying a light pack and they've got all this stuff and we stride in, we come to some wonderful lakes uh, in the Lake Louise area. Uh, they just blow up their kayaks and they go out into the middle of the lake and they put instruments down and they service instruments that are already there. And these are really complicated um, kind of oceanographic instruments. They're measuring the um, spectra of the radiation going into the lake uh, and how it changes with depth and how the um, turbidity of the lake varies with depth and how this affects color and the biological content of the lake and how that's changing as the um, sedimentation from the glaciers changes with time. So they, they've got a really wonderful study and a long history. 
And then they heard about my work on um, glacier changes. We've been doing a lot of computer work on projecting the future of glaciers um, in uh, Western Canada. So we knew um, we'd done projections for the areas that they were studying as well as all the rest of BC and Alberta. And um, they got in touch and said, hey, you want to work with us and you can tell us how the glaciers are changing and you can tell us what it's going to be like in the future. And um, we'll just work together on this. So I've been working on that sort of simulation modeling of uh, the recent past and the future for their various uh, study lakes. And we'll pull this together, I guess, in a, a year or two now. It, 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 I thought it would be over by now, but it's not quite. But it'll be really interesting when it's completed. And then I got a few other things. There was a big, um, big disappeared lake in the Yukon that um, used to be very large and um, made horrendous floods. Uh, there was a glacier-dammed lake, and these are quite dangerous, or can be. Um, if you think of uh, damming, a lake with ice. Ice is a really poor thing to use to make a dam because it floats. So when you raise the water level of the lake, eventually the dam floats. So you get a flood sort of inevitably unless there's a way for the water to avoid raising up to that high level. Uh, so there, there's one, one lake there that I've um, studied very carefully over a lot of years and um, I'm very interested in its floods and I'm trying to work uh, on some aspects of that. And that's another paper in the mix. And then another one that's totally unglaciological that I'm doing with a friend from Dalhousie on igneous petrology. Um, uh, but uh, for me, it's all the same. I, I just, it's got sort of the same physics and the same math behind it. So it, I kind of like doing these other side projects. Um, and he's an almost namesake of mine. His name is Barry Clark, uh, Clark with an E same as me. And we were born about 20 days apart, went to the same kindergarten and elementary school in Toronto. And um, then miraculously, um, and lived in the same res same house in Toronto, we had different levels of the same house. So we'd walk to school together, we we're best pals for about three years. And then we both went to different directions. And then years later, he sent me a note and said, hey, do you know, I'm a earth scientist and I see you are one too. Let's try to do something together. So we, we've been actually working together. We've done one paper a while ago. And That's amazing. Yeah, it is, <laughs> yeah, it is pretty remarkable. And we, um, in our one paper, we said, we'd like to thank our parents. Um, <laughs> Trying to sort of stain the mystery of um, <laughs> The immediate premise is that we're brothers in some way, um, but that's not the case at all. You mentioned that uh, igneous rocks, uh, studying igneous petrology is very similar to uh, glaciology, and I never thought about it like that, but I guess igneous rocks are just frozen lava, just like ice is frozen water. Yeah, they're a lot harder than ice. You know, the thing that made me interested in ice was it's monomineralic material, you know, it's uh, frozen H2O, whereas uh, petrologists are really in the thick of it. They've got everything in there. Too much chemistry, I'd have to say, but it makes it a lot more complicated. Now, one of the um, amazing things that I find with this uh, interview series is uh, field stories. Um, do you have any stories from the field that you'd like to share? Well, uh, depends what kind of stories you want. The, um, the ones you remember are the ones that... Um, this, they're, like they're, they usually mix either tragedy or terror 
um, with um, with humor. And I guess that's no surprise. There are a lot of good jokes that came out of various wars, I suppose. But um, for us, the uh, sources of um, terror are um, bears, uh, definitely, um, and um, airplane accidents. And but um, I don't have any bad stories to tell, but I so thank heavens and over all the years that I've worked there, we, we never really injured anybody or came close to doing so. But I, I do remember one very funny story. There was, a, 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 this is an airplane crash that I wasn't involved in and it was a crash that didn't hurt anybody. But um, at the runway where our base camp was, um, there were uh, these short takeoff and landing aircraft, and uh, they're they're great for bush flying. And one of these planes uh, was flown by some friends of ours, and um, it took off, and then it stalled in midair, and it kind of drifted. Unfortunately, short takeoff and landing means they don't land very fast, you know, so they don't do a lot of damage. So it coasted uh, and then crashed on a beach. The, they had enough control to keep out of the water and off the highway and to find a flat place on the beach. But anyhow, it landed on the beach and it broke the, the skis and it bent the helicopter and it broke a wing. <laughs> so it was like a sort of wounded plane. And they, it was so close to the highway, they got anxious that um, the, the highway people would scavenge uh, the av avionics, for example, in the plane and whatever else was in there. So they decided that the right thing to do was um, delegate two of my friends to um, sit by the plane overnight and have a campfire and a tent. Uh, and, uh, so they were there and they're sitting there and they, I think they're drinking a bit of whiskey and uh, beside the fire and watching the, um, Yukon sun setting and various people are stopping on the highway to see this plane <laughs> looking kind of wounded. And these people cheerfully sitting on the beach, having this fire, so, you know, they, they say, are you boys all right? Uh, and they say, yeah, sure. We just decided to land and get a good night's sleep and early start tomorrow morning. <laughs> <laughs> So, <laughs> so everyone thought they were completely crazy, but uh, so that was kind of a, a good chuckle. We've had um, occasional bear interactions in in our glacier camps too, which first of all came as a surprise because we thought we don't have mosquitoes at the camp. We're above that kind of um, irritation, and we thought we were above the bears too. But the bears seem to use the glaciers as a kind of hiking route. Um, smoother than the ground usually. Um, so if they want to get from Valley X to Valley Y, they'll do some quite ambitious mountaineering and cross, cross, use the glaciers, climb up, cross over the passes, slide down the next one. Uh, so we watched this a bit and um, from time to time they get fascinated by us and come to visit the camp. And we did have one bear that um, <laughs> we found kind of try to eat the bacon that we had for breakfast or whatever it was. Uh, so we, um, quite spooked by this and we kind of scared the bear away but the bears who once they've started eating things come back so we were kind of prepared for the bear and sure enough uh it came back and this time we were ready for it and we decided um, that this was not a a dangerous bear it was a it was a grizzly of course but they're quite powerful etc but um not one that was ready to assert itself so we decided that we would scare the bear so we <laughs> we got sticks and uh, metal poles and we're going bang, bang, bang. And we got a big tarp that we flapped and all of us chased the bear up the moraine uh, and out of sight. And the bear just kept looking back thinking, God, these guys are weird. Uh, and then just kept going. 
but we thought, well, the bear will come back. So sure enough, this is the worst nightmare. The night came and the weather changed and it became snowy. So we couldn't see. Uh, and you can't hear much once the snow's on the ground. Nothing clicks. So we had a kind of um, anxious night. We're all in separate tents and um, bear visitations would be focused on an individual tent rather than all of them. So none of us slept that well, I think. But the next morning we woke up and there was no damage and no bear. And then we looked around the camp and we saw big paw prints all around. And then no damage, no anything. The bear looked at this thing and thought, I don't want any more of these guys. <laughs> and vanished forever. We never had that visit again. Those are great field stories. I particularly love the, uh, the airplane. It reminds me of our barge on the beach right now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no drunken sailors, I guess. That would be the, the icing on the cake, wouldn't it? But... Oh, yes. Your research is clearly um, really important, but what would you say are the uh, real-world uh, applications to it, or why does it matter to the average person? Well, I think climate change, of course, does matter to the average person. Um, and I, though I think that they do not realize the extent to which they uh, depend on the glaciers not changing. Um, uh, people uh, in coastal areas don't realize that the sea level is controlled by the ice sheets of the world. And if we make them go away, we could have a reckoning of about 60 meters of um, sea level rise. Um, uh, that wouldn't happen in a weekend. Uh, but. Um, it's a lot to deal with. So even a small amount of sea level rise is going to cost trillions, um, uh, which I think makes the idea of getting very serious about climate mitigation and uh, measures of uh, trying to uh, improve fossil fuel uh, usage and uh, numbers of things like that. It puts that in the financial context. We can't afford not to control this as best we can. And we've already lost an opportunity to do it inexpensively. Uh, let's not lose the opportunity to do it, because I think there will be a hard time um, surviving this, um, not just in individuals, but the whole, all civilizations, um, if we don't um, get some kind of control of, of this and get that 1.5 degree um, temperature rise really locked in. We can survive that, but we uh, there's, there's some um, changes that will be so extreme that um, there's really not much hope. Uh, certainly the civilizations wouldn't survive, but at some point, um, no, the people wouldn't either. I think that's a great answer. Um, too often we think of climate change and environmentalism as being just something, you know, hippies care about. But really, it does have a dollars and cents consequence to it when it's ignored. You mentioned earlier this uh, nightmare scenario where uh, the ice sheet in Antarctica gets overlubricated and just floats off the landmass and into the sea. Um, what's that about? Well, um, that is a concern right now. There's uh, an area of um, East Antarctic, or West Antarctic ice sheet rather, called uh, Thwaites Glacier that's uh, becoming unglued at the moment. And um, if it gets thin, it'll essentially float off its base because it's con it has contact with the ocean. So if it starts to rise and the ocean penetrates beneath it, and that could be a, uh, give way to a kind of runaway instability and uh, quite a large uh, sea level contribution, not five meters, but less, um, but enough to raise sea level, uh, quite enough to make a lot of damage like the uh, 
flood barrier in London would be overtop. There would be no way to save London and um, areas of Manhattan would be kind of waterlogged. And um, uh, if you remember, the Hurricane Sandy put water into the subway system. Uh, it shows how close they are to being endangered in the present climate we have. If we raise sea level and then do something like that, um, you could really make um, large areas of the world uh, unsustainable for, uh, it'd be too expensive to fix, you know. And then there are sort of tragic losses too, like Venice and places like that that are highly vulnerable. Even a small amount of sea level rise will make it pretty hard to keep Venice going. And how soon could that happen? Well, um, we're looking to something like a meter of sea level rise um, within a hundred years. And um, there's a bit of... um, uncertainty about that if we just decide it'll be as little as we can um, expect it would be just to lose all the mountain glaciers and that's about 0.6 meters or something like that of sea level rise but uh, it seems like the ice sheets are getting involved as well so Greenland is shrinking and Antarctica is um, shedding a lot of ice too so if we could if if they get um, disturbed as well you could get quite a reinforcement of the effect from just the glaciers going, it could be several meters of sea level rise in the hundred years. We don't know that, but you know, you can, you can paint nightmare scenarios that are quite grim. Um, the five meter, 10 meter stuff, that's not for our lifetime, but um, that that's pretty well um, in the cards if we lose control and we seem to be. Maybe we should convert the UBC subway to a UBC monorail. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, we. I'd like to see the UBC subway get going. Anyway, I know it started stopped at Arbutus right now. We could uh, do without the bus part of it. Absolutely. <laughs> now you're clearly passionate about your work, um, but what's the best part about it? Well, the, the potentially bad part. Yeah, the, there's a Jean-Paul Sartre play I think called uh, No Exit, uh, in which the premise is that hell is other people. <laughs> Uh, and I think that if you happen to be having bad luck in the company you had on uh, glacier field camps, you'd experience the very worst of what glaciology had on offer. I've been very careful uh, in uh, choosing the company I keep on the glaciers. And I must say, I've been delighted by the company I've had there. So I don't think I've had um, bad experiences. The university itself can offer certain kinds of bad experiences, but they're part of the job, you know. I don't like marking exams. Um, I like teaching. Um, I'm not doing that now, but um, there are things I don't think I like evaluating people. I don't like judging them, their work, and saying that's not good enough. Um, I, that's a kind of unpleasant task. I think you can do it in a way that's constructive, but it still seems like why do you get the right to uh, to take that? control of somebody else's uh, life like that. So that's troublesome, but probably necessary. And um, I think you answered part of my next question. What's the, the, or um, do you feel like the field is really open and welcoming or is it more insular and looks after its own? It sounds like when you're in the field, certainly it's very um, unit-based and it's just you and a few people on an ice sheet. Um, Yeah, I think the field is pretty porous though. we've we've had a tremendous explosion of um, participation in glaciology. I know, for example, um, American Geophysical Union um, 
I remember the first time I went to do a to a glaciology session at the American Geophysical Union, and it was in um, when I was a grad student, not doing glaciology, but I um, went to Washington D.C. for the spring meeting, and some of the best geophysicists in the world happened to be there, um, best glaciologists, that is to say, and. Um, in the room, I think there were 25 people and um, we were on the worst day, uh, the worst hour of the last day, I think, uh, at the conference. So this was not exactly a prestigious undertaking. Um, and now it's complete opposite. There's a section of glaciology in the um, American Geophysical Union. There's a section in cryosphere science in the uh, European Geosciences Union. Um, no proper earth science organization doesn't have a place for glaciology right now. And there are thousands of people um, getting employment, uh, a situation I never imagined. Uh, the great universities in the States are all begging to get uh, glaciologists on faculty. You know, Harvard's got people, uh, Yale, uh, places that uh, were too grand to imagine uh, having people like us around. And the time I first started are now... Um, so on the, on the hunt, you know, for good people. So there's, uh, it's been great that way. And a lot of women, I must say, um, in the field right now doing very well. So, um, I, I think it's a very open, um, world to be in right now. And the good part is there are a lot of problems to be worked on. Um, so I don't think that there's a sense of kind of ferocious competition between groups. There's a lot of cooperation and interest in other people's work. So it's kind of a friendly um, collection of people too. Wonderful. Whenever I ask that question, um, I'm always nervous because uh, open and and welcoming can be good, but so can be uh, insular and, and looking after your own. And it sounds like um, uh, glaciology achieves both. Um, In different ways, yes, that's true. You've got the cozy setting. Well, I do think that fieldwork does a lot for people. Uh, you, you, um, you never get closer to a person than in the field, and I know number of people who do think that the best moment in their life was when they were on Traverse Glacier. You know, it's quite quite interesting. People that I wouldn't expect to hear that from, not my just my grad students, but um, just people who are up as uh, summer assistants and that kind of thing. They thought it was wonderful. And I agree. And I'm sure your friends who survived that plane crash um, were thick as thieves afterward. <laughs> now, I'm curious. Uh, you've mentioned that the field is changing um, and that there's been a huge influx of women. Um, do you identify as belonging to any underrepresented communities? Um, or do you feel like they, uh, um, the field is getting more diverse? The, the diversity is definitely um, a big issue for earth sciences in general. And um, it, I think um, the history of glaciology um, makes it a uniquely undiverse uh, field um, in its uh, origins. If you think of um, the kinds of people that were doing uh, glacier work in the 1800s and beyond, um, they were people who would be maybe uh, inclined to be professional mountaineers if they weren't um, glaciologists, you know, or uh, some glaciologists even found themselves on Everest expeditions and things like that. Um, and that's uh, been, until fairly recently, the domain of uh, macho men, I think. Um, and I think that's been broken down uh, very effectively um, over the last 
several decades. And, um, and I think that would be true throughout the earth sciences, but it's still a project to be done. And I think the problem at the moment is that uh, some of the kind of um, formal recognition of uh, a life's work and things like that, the women are still being, I think, maybe under, uh, under recognized because there aren't that many really long careers uh, uh, in glaciology amongst the women and who participate. There are a lot of wonderful mid-career uh, glaciologists and um, a small number of uh, uh, late career. I think uh, uh, if you'd asked this question 20 years ago, I think I could probably name uh, three or four uh, <laughs> and uh, people that would qualify for if you were searching really hard for people worthy of awards, you'd be able in the world to come up with a pool that large. So it makes it hard to, um, in those days, it would have been hard. Uh, we did our best. I know they're the one very wonderful person uh, who's not with us anymore. Um, a Swiss woman uh, got the highest award in glaciology, but that, um, and, and others have done that since, but it, it's still a, a work in progress, I think. What's that award called? Uh, the Seligman Crystal. It's um, the, the founder of the International Glaciological Society was a man called Gerald Seligman, who was an amateur who wrote a book on ski fields and snow or something like that. So he was a kind of amateur snow scientist and quite rich, I think. Um, he was in the aircraft industry, I believe. And um, he got very interested in glaciology because he was kind of a mountain person and um, decided that this should be a, a formal science. And he actually almost kind of, through his personal action, created that science for the English-speaking world and um, set in motion a really good society and a, a wonderful journal that was um, just full of real scientific treasures. Um, that's probably what drew me into glaciology at first, was just reading that journal and. Uh, appreciating the quality of the science and uh, the look of it. And, uh, uh, now the look of it has changed a fair bit, but th that was definitely the big bait for me in terms of intellectual uh, rewards. Great. And what was the, the woman called? Uh, what was the woman's name? Oh, Almut Eakin. Yeah, she was pretty interesting. She was a school teacher who uh, late in her uh, career decided that she would like to get a PhD. A school teacher in rural Switzerland. And she then... Um, went to McGill and got a doctorate uh, from a Swiss prof professor, indeed, uh, who was working there. Uh, and then she moved back to um, Switzerland and got employed in uh, ETH Zurich uh, in, a, in a lab there and um, continued to do wonderful work. Um, and she was very fortunate at ETH. Everything is kind of gold-plated. They get a lot of support. Uh, wonderful equipment. And so she got lots of advantages by that. And she got to do wonderful work in Alaska and Greenland and um, Northern Canada. And, and certainly made a lasting contribution. She's well regarded. Wonderful. Excellent. You're a wealth of wisdom today. <laughs> um, speaking of which, you have uh, made a very compelling case to go into glaciology. Uh, it sounds gorgeous it sounds rewarding and like you said there's a market for it so um what advice or background or education uh would you have for young people considering going into glaciology yeah that's a good question because my um the answer i worked with is maybe not the one i'd give now 
I really did think that the maths and physics were the, the core of um, this science. And I still, uh, in my heart of hearts, uh, believe that. The kinds of uh, grad students I really enjoyed getting were uh, mechanical engineers. They seemed to know everything, um, occasionally electrical engineers, engineering physics, uh, honors physics. Uh, those are the, and applied mathematics. So that, those were the sort of uh, A team for the people I was uh, seeking out. Quite a number of them came in from astrophysics, actually. Uh, uh, Kristen Schuh, for one, and a really good graduate student I got from Cal Colorado, who's a prophet, Simon Fraser, right now. Um, so that would be uh, the sort of advice people would expect me to give. But I think change, a lot has changed since then. I think the, um, there's a lot of really good work done in remote sensing, which I'm not particularly good at myself. And... Um, Oh, large-scale com computing, which I reluctantly do. Uh, but that, that's uh, something that I think people are trained for now, so they don't have to learn the same way I did, which is just kind of by hit and miss. So I think, I think there, there are a lot of roots in, and I, I think that you can also find a root in that comes through physical geography uh, or uh, forms of, um, oh, uh, Glacier. Oh, you, you know, structural geology and things like that as well. But um, I think the very successful careers in glaciology tend to have been people who've come out of um, the kind of hard science backgrounds right now, for the most part. It sounds like it's really at the center of many scientific Venn diagrams. Yeah, that's true. I, and I think that's a, one of the real, real joys of the field, I think. And uh, it's also a very easy field to talk about, you know, and I think some science is quite inaccessible to people. You have a hard time maintaining other people's interest when you're talking about your work. And I think the glaciers are just innately interesting to a lot of people. And um, so it's quite a pleasure to do science that you can actually tell others about. Absolutely. You mentioned uh, the fields that you drew your grad students from. What uh, characteristics were you looking for, for uh, with your grad students? Oh, you know, I, I've um, had a lot of respect for people who came um, from surprising backgrounds and, um, and people with um, diverse things going on in their curriculum vitae, uh, like U-turns and things like that. Some of that worked out really well. So I, I didn't have a sense that I was looking for one kind of person. And I think when you do um, fieldwork, you appreciate that sort of diverse uh, benefits of uh, diverse uh, skill sets. Um, so I was pretty open about that. I was probably harder on the people that came as field assistants. I used to have a quiz that I'd require them to fill out before I even discussed hiring. And it was things like, what are you reading right now? <laughs> because actually, I like people who read books. And um, I didn't much care what the answer was. But I if people came up with uh, cowboy novels or something like that, I was thinking, eh, I'm not sure I want to hear about that all summer. Uh, <laughs> and, um, you know, or, or and then the other trick question I would ask was, um, do you have um, mountaineering skill? Uh, and people would say, yeah, I'm really good at this. I've been up and down this uh, mountain blindfolded at night. And, and I thought, I don't want that person around. This is an accident waiting to happen. So the, the people that were most proud of themselves were immediately excluded. And the, the ones I liked were people, well, a person once, I 
had the question, um, do you have a driver's license? And it didn't matter. It, it matters only that we did have trucks, so we had to move around with equipment. So someone's got to drive. But one person said, yes, but I wouldn't call myself a skilled driver. I haven't had a lot of practice. And I thought, there's the guy I want, you know. <laughs> that totally makes sense. Um, yeah, you want to make sure that your personality meshes properly because, again, you're just a small cell of people in this um, field of ice. <laughs> and you've got to make sure that you get to, uh, get along with each other. <laughs> Now, um, again, you've been really inspiring today. I've, um, I've loved glaciers a little more after this. <laughs> um, who inspired you while you were studying? Oh, um, I think you're most susceptible to inspiration when you're an undergraduate. Um, and I was an undergraduate at the University of Alberta. I had some uh, wonderful, uh, inspiring professors there. Um, and, um, they weren't all glaciologists at all. They, um, one was an English prof, Henry Kreisel, who I just thought was great. People used to line up the once a year when he re read the wasteland from cover to cover. Uh, and <laughs> so he, he was really special, a terrific uh, reader and a wonderful inspiration just to, uh, as a human. Uh, and then a really wonderful math professor, um, Werner Israel, who's actually a very famous um, kind of astrophysicist. He does work on gravitation. He's, he's a very famous scientist now, but he was sublimely good math professor, um, taught differential equations, and he, he was so smart and so very clear. It was just a pleasure to be in the room when he was talking. And then uh, the other mention, mentioned was uh, George Garland, who was my geophysics uh, prof that uh, helped me uh, decide to go to Toronto when he left. He was terrific as well in a lot of ways. And when I got to Toronto, I was lucky. Uh, uh, I'm not sure I got an influence from him, but he was inspiring. That was Tuza Wilson. He's one of the great names in Canadian earth science. And he was, um, at that very time, he was um, just coming up with the sort of continental drift ideas that made him famous. And we thought he was loony. Um, we went to, we had a graduate seminar and everyone just took turns trying to shoot him down. It was really quite funny. And he thought it was hilarious because uh, he knew he was right. Um, but this went on and on and on. And he never showed any injury or resentment. And eventually, we, a couple of years later, we were proved completely wrong that he was right in everything he'd told us all, all along. But he was great. And the nice thing about him, and I do think this is the one thing I've uh, carried with with me uh, as best I can. He never seemed to be having a bad time. He was always just enjoying himself, whatever he was doing. And I thought, wow, that's a good way to live. I think one of my um, favorite profs from university too was a little loony and um, I just loved her. <laughs> okay. Oh, by the way, what are you reading right now? What am I reading right now? Oh gosh. Well, I am reading a very, very short book that was written by the niece of my ex-wife. <laughs> uh, and she's a very talented writer, obviously. I've, I've met her only once, but um, this is a tiny book about phone booths. Uh, but the quality of writing is ex exquisite. It's the kind of thing you'd read in New York or something like that. Uh, uh, she's a literature prof in uh, Eastern US right now. But uh, yeah, it's, it's a good book. I'm not sure you'll ever find it. Um, I, if you look up phone booths book, you'll probably find it. Okay, good. <laughs> okay, final question. Um, 
you're coming to the end of your career. And um, I'm curious, what do you hope your legacy is? What do you think people think of when they think of you? Well, the legacy I'm most pleased with, I think, is the uh, my connection to really good students who've um, made something of the time they've, they've spent with me. They've, um, they've done well in a lot of different ways, but um, I'm really proud of them. They, were, they started with amazing quality, and um, I hope I gave them something that uh, added to that. They would have done, I'm sure, just as well without me, but I, I like to take a bit of pride in, in their successes. Um, I think that's the best, the best part. Um, I, I think you're being too modest. I'm sure they owe a lot to you. Um, just this brief time that we've had together, again, you're an incredible inspiration. Um, the chatter around UBC is that I had to interview you because you're a treasure. And um, yeah, you're clearly very knowledgeable and very personable and just a joy to be around. <laughs> Those are all the questions I have for you for today. Is there anything I missed or anything you want to add before I let you go? Oh, no, that, that was good fun for me. Thank you for giving me a chance to, uh, to chat about these things. Thank you. Thanks for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast, or listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week, here on Earth.